podcast, Greater Than Yourself. All right. Uh, welcome to episode 11 of a podcast greater than yourself. I'm John Barleycorn. And I am Fred. And we are your hosts, as always. With us this week is our friend Roland. And the topic we were discussing was step one. And I would say Roland is a dear friend of both of ours. And I had a feeling he was going to come in with some epic fire, and he did not disappoint. Yeah, it was uh, uh, <laughs> napalm raining from the skies. It was it was very very good. I was engaged the entire time, and uh, I think there's probably a tons that we're gonna have to put in for like maybe a bonus episode later or something. There's three podcasts. We just recorded three podcasts basically. It was it was really good. I was super enthralled the whole time. So looking forward to what people have to say about it. Feel free to reach out to us on Instagram. Podcast greater than yourself. There's some underscores in involved in that name it's uh i don't know a little confusing <laughs> i don't you can listen use the search function and you'll figure <laughs> it out okay also you can hit us up on email at a podcast greater than yourself at gmail.com <laughs> all right cool well uh yeah enjoy the episode thanks all right all right. Okay. So, Roland. What, sorry, what were you saying about your reading, Mr. Roland? Yeah. Tell us about your reading. Do you want us to pray in? <laughs> no, just leave me in, please. You want to like in. have a? You want to have like a moment of silence for the still sick and suffering? Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and say the seven step <laughs> prayer. I need to get me out of the way. I'm gonna let God lead this. Okay. Here, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll lead you in. Okay. Welcome back to KSBR Sober <laughs> Radio with our host Roland. Coming in at number one <laughs> with a bullet. It's page forty-four. I always go to this. I mean, this is just—it's—it's it's too important for me to not talk about. But it, it, it's page forty-four, and it's if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably an alcoholic. And the, the reason that I—I'll share that in every step one meeting I go to because it's just uh, what I. It, it hit home for me because I, I just had no idea what the fuck alcoholism was, you know, and I didn't know what an alcoholic was and I didn't know what powerlessness meant. If you were to press me, I was in AA for seven years and I had no idea that this passage existed. I had probably heard it a hundred times, but I just didn't ever connect the dots. It just wasn't there for me. So when I, I sat down and I, and I read that for the first time and, and connected to it, it was like, Oh, that's, that's what alcoholism is. It's because I used to jump to like, you know, consequences or, or the feelings of, of alcoholism or, or whatever it is. But if you were to say, Roland, what does it look like to be an alcoholic? What does it look like to be powerless? You know, I would take you in all sorts of different directions, but it had nothing to do with actually specifically, what does it look like when you drink? So if, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, you know, how have you attempted to quit before and were you able to follow through with that? It's pretty simple. No, I was not able to. When drinking, you have little control over the amount you take. Are you able to follow through with a commitment to only go out and have two drinks and do that? No? Well, then you're probably an alcoholic. It's that fucking simple. Mm -hmm. Because it's just overcomplicated. I, I mean, I would sit in first step meetings and people would pull out like the 21 questions from the IP on the, you know, or whatever it is. And I was just like, man, I got no, I was just so confused. And it, it was helpful to have a sponsor to come in and just simplify it. Like, all right, we're going to do this. What we're going to do is just read this book together. And anything that's in this book, we're going to take and, and, and use that. Anything else, let's maybe set it aside for now. 
Mm-hmm. And I just came in sort of childlike because I was just that desperate. I was like, all right, whatever, you know, you just show me and I'll follow. And, and he took me here for step one. Exactly my experience as well with the book and being confused, sitting in AA for years, just not really understanding what step one even meant. Um, because, and I had read the book, but I just, I don't think that that part was as highlighted to me. Or I think when you're reading the book and going to meetings, you're getting such different information. Uh-huh. So much about, you go to a step one meeting and it's all about how many DUIs you had and how much crazy stuff you've done. Yeah. And, um, and then you have this, this flip side with the book, which is so clear. Um, can you control how much you drink? And when you start drinking, can you stop when you want to? And um, those are the only two things. It doesn't uh, matter how, how much you drank, when you drank, what type you drank. None of that stuff matters. It, you know, um, you know, and, and uh, I know we've joked about hearing a speaker tape of somebody who's been in AA but never actually had a drink, which I don't know if I would <laughs> take it quite that far. But, um, but the idea behind, you know, you don't have to be a guy who gets up and chugs Jack Daniels uh, warm on a Tuesday morning. That is not an alcoholic. But I think so often in meetings, you know, um, I always have this to my sponsees. I say, just close your eyes for a second. And if I say the word alcoholic, tell me what you think. And mm-hmm. nine times out of 10, it's a guy pushing a shopping cart yeah. with a brown bag, right. un- living under the bridge. And that's what we think of. We don't think of the dude with 3,000 square foot house who's, you know, having eight vodka tonics and, uh, and dying a slow spiritual death, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but they can technically both be... And actually, the guy living under the bridge might just be a fucking hard drinker, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. So, <laughs> Um, I mean, that's you know, it the, goes to that in the real alcoholic and hard drinker. They look exactly the same, but only one can, you know, the real alcoholic needs a spiritual solution. The hard drinker even may die, you know, and it's like, exactly. that's why it always takes me back to this passage. And it's like, all right, we're going to answer these two questions here. And if you can answer affirmative to both of them, you're probably an alcoholic, you know, and that's it. That's the qualifier. I love that. It just makes it that simple. There's a key word that you made me think of when you were talking. It was, uh, and it was something that my sponsor would say to me regularly when we were pre step one, when we were doing this investigation. Mm-hmm. And it's so imperative that as you're going through this book, as you're working with a new person, as you're, ex- as you're exploring, um, you know, sitting down with a, a new man and, or new person and you're sitting across from them, that's the investigation. That's the discovering whether or not their drinking aligns with the qualifications in the book. And I feel like this is the part that for me is frustrating because I feel like we gloss over that by just being like, well, if you made it to AA, you <laughs> must be an alcoholic. Yeah, It's like, uh, no, the judge sent me here. I'm fucking 21 <laughs> years old. I don't know anything, you yeah. know? Um, and uh, I think, you know, we because the judges and, and systems have gotten so used to just being like, just go to AA um, that we've, and then we've gotten good at being like, well, if you made, if you, you earned, if you made it here, you earned your seat or whatever yeah. bullshit people say. Because all um, those people were sent to AA. <laughs> <laughs> So you have 25 people in a room of 30 that got sent here. Exactly. You're an alcoholic like I'm an alcoholic. Right. But we don't do that investigation. We don't take them through and say, let's look back at your experience because only you know if you drank that way. Nobody else knows. That's why this is about, you know, deciding for yourself. Yeah. So like when you, when you got to this part with your sponsor, like you were talking about, Mm -hmm. um, are you guys like looking at 
stuff in the doctor's opinion and there's a solution mm-hmm. and more about alcoholism, like hitting high points. Cause I know you, yeah. you had a, an experience where it was like real quick. Yeah. So it was the, some of it. And I've even talked to Fred about it in the past. It was, it was, I, it was a perfect approach to the steps for me because I had, had a lot of AA experience before this. So a lot of the information wasn't new to me. So, uh, I went through the steps extremely quickly in, in about two weeks. We went through all of this and we sat down and did steps one, two, and three in the same, and he gave me information to do on step four, um, in the same sit down. So we were just doing the, the greatest hits, you know, he would take me to the passage and, um, restless irritable and discontented and, and the doctor's opinion and then took me to page 44. And then we took me, you know, to unmanageability, the actor wanting to run the whole show and kind of just laid it out there for me. But he would ask the questions when, you know, we got to page 44. It's like, can you, does that sound like you? And can you give me an example? Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say, yeah. So I had made the decision like a thousand times before I got to sit in front of you that I was done drinking forever. But, you know, here I am again in a detox. Like, what the fuck? And for the second portion of that question, it was like, and have, uh, have you ever attempted to control the drinking? It's like I quit attempting to control it when I was when I was young because I realized that not only did I not want to attempt to control it, control it, I just couldn't. You know, I could mm. see that early on, and I think that's honestly what got me to AA first is that I could see that uh, when I drank, it was real, real bad. You know, I, I didn't yet think I was an alcoholic, but I, I could see that when I drank, uh, there wasn't any ability to to knock it off. I'd go out for two drinks and then wind up in Chicago. You know, mm-hmm. I, that's the shit that happened when I was real, real young that led me to AA, but I wasn't, I wasn't anywhere near like ready to quit drinking. I just, I, I still thought AA was going to teach me how to manage it or something. It, that, that's the thing is that AA for me worked best when it was the last available option, you know? So it was, yeah. uh, but I like so many other young people that came into AA at an early age, you know, had problems with drinking. I just noticed a lot of those people got sober, like the first time they came in, you know, it was enough for them to like, Oh damn, I, I'm an idiot. When I get drunk, they came to AA and fucking stayed sober. And me, it was like a nine year process of like eliminating other possibilities and options of how to get sober, like uh, treatment and, and medication and psychiatry and, life coaching you know all the other sh- <laughs> all the other stuff i don't know why life coaching is always the, the <laughs> well, somebody like shows you how to you know use a planner and, <laughs> <laughs> like make sure to make your bed when you get up in the morning it's like oh this is sobriety this feels good <laughs> the stuff with like uh with people who come in and um it's their first yeah. time coming to aa and being introduced to whatever, whether it's fellowship or book or whatever, with people who are having their first AA experience and not getting qualified or yes, getting qualified. Like it's, it's the kind of the same thing. It's like the same net result, no matter where you're at. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like with people who are brand new to AA and you, if you sit down, you do this, you're going to do the same thing. You know, it might be a slightly different approach because you're going to be like, Hey, so, you know, what's, it's more investigation. Like what's going on, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to approach this guy a little differently with somebody like you or like with me, where it's like, I have a certain level of knowledge, certainly prejudice. Um, Mm -hmm. 
about AA and what I think AA is. But ultimately, it boils down to the same thing. I'm I'm going to get this person to where them and I are on page 44 and we're seeing if they qualify. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to throw this out there that I'm not saying that like, if you get to AA first, it doesn't mean you're a real alcoholic or not. I mean, it doesn't mean shit, you know, it just means that you you got here early or whatever. Maybe you're less stubborn than people. Yeah. (laughs) For whatever the reason I just needed to, like, I just, I just knew that second step was, you know, I read that on the wall and I was just like, absolutely not, you know, no. That's not, and, and I had to get beaten until that, like, I no longer had that uh, thing that said, uh, no, you know, the belligerent denial of step two. That's just, it was, that's my experience with it. And I ended up working well with chronic relapsers. That seems to be the, the, the dudes that are attracted to my, my message for whatever reason and the way I sound. They, those are the guys that have, like, been in AA for, like, nine years. And like, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Same story. Those are the guys that end up approaching me, like, I have this same spirit experience. Like, what, what was the difference for you? You know, so. And so what, what was the difference? Um, I, I just had to be thoroughly beaten. I don't know why. I think it's two things. Honestly, I think it's two things. Is I got here too young. You know, I got here way too early. Uh, AA, for whatever reason, is like plan A for a lot of people because it's just mm-hmm. everywhere. It's prevalent. You know, any yeah. treatment center you go to, they'll put you in AA meetings. Any, you know, you get pulled over and get arrested for DUI, they'll send you to an AA meeting. They'll send you there first as if they're maybe stopping this progression. But for a real alcoholic, we have to go through what we have to go through before we're willing to take spiritual help. And uh, I got here too young. So uh, yeah, I spent years floundering in AA because I wasn't willing yet to, to follow through with the actions. I just was more interested in fellowship, you know, a little bit of service. Do you? But, uh, Sorry, go ahead. I just think the other thing was that I got caught in a detox when I was uh, like super desperate because I had been there a couple times too. You know, I had been to a place where I think I could have gotten sober if I was met with the steps early. And for whatever reason, it just didn't happen. Uh, something happens to me after like three to six months sober where I start running the show again and, yeah. and then I'm fucked. There's nothing that will penetrate in, at that point. You know, it doesn't matter if I have a, the best big book sponsor in the world. I'm back in my own shit. No, 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 no. Here's how it has to go. You know? Yeah. But I got met, I got met early with the steps and and I got met when I was like super willing and and followed through really quickly. And that's just my experience. I know a lot of people that have a, they, they do a step a month or or whatever the shit is and they can get to a spiritual experience. It's just not my experience. I needed it Mm -hmm. real quick. Like sometimes I think about the people who, you know, you go to meetings and you see these people at groups and stuff and there's, it's a weird, uh, scales of morality kind of thing in my head where like on one side, there's these people who have, to my experience and opinion, probably gotten to AA too soon. And even if they've heard the solution, like you're saying, you could have the big, the best big book sponsor on earth. That's just like, dude, my ego has come back. I am running the show. You know, I'm riddled with obsession. Like I might be hearing all this stuff, but like I'm still scrambling to manage my life because I think that that's what I've got to do to figure out how to stay sober. Mm-hmm. So you've got those people, and like you see them over and over, and they're fucking miserable, and they're like. 
getting a tattoo as an amends and they're like buying a fucking car that they don't need and can't afford and they're like you know what i mean they're mm -hmm. chasing jobs they're chasing you know spouses or whatever and like racking up debt and like fucking people in the rooms and just just all of this self-will run riot stuff and then there's this other side of the scale where there's these these people who are just like desperately in need of the solution and they've gotten to AA like right under the wire and it's like you are you're you've got cirrhosis you're you know you're young mm -hmm. and like relatively young and you're like physically dying from alcoholism and incapable of cracking that step 2 thing or the step 3 thing or even step 1 like you mm -hmm. just cannot get it you can't accept defeat and you can't accept the answer whatever it is um, mm -hmm. and so there's a sense of these scales of these two groups of people that I see in in rooms where it's like my moral barometer kind of vacillates on who is more depressing you know <laughs> it's and it's a weird thing it's what I think about when you're talking because it's just like I feel like I could have I, I have been at least one of those people and I could have been both you know yeah. When I first came to AA, it was like, yeah, the very, very first time I came, I was definitely there too early. I came and then I had an experience with powerlessness and I was like, maybe that's what's going on here because something weird just happened where I had said I, I was done for good and then suddenly I just like snapped and I was... I was drunk and I was standing there drinking and I had a desire chip in my hand and I was like... What the fuck? I went to that weird room and with all these old guys smoking and I was all uncomfortable and I picked up this, you know, 24 hour coin and I'm standing here with it in my hand and I'm drunk and I'm just like, well, I thought all these guys told me just don't drink and come back to meetings and that's what I was going to do. And now I'm drunk. And yeah. like, and, and, and so I went back and then I did get a big book sponsor and I did find out what powerlessness was about. And then none of that was was enough though for me to really understand that what you're talking about on page 44 applied to me where it's like if i really really believe that i'm the person that the book is like narrowing down to in those first 50 something pages then what the program offers me is the solution that's outlined in like the next 60 pages so if mm -hmm. i'm going to just be like well i'm not going to do all of that i'm just going to do some of it then I'm very likely to experience what I experienced, which was having a really profound experience, crapping out around 10 and 11, and then drinking again for another decade, you know? Yeah, right. And then coming That's back the, a lot more advanced in it and being right. closer to that other group of people, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think the, the almost the more yeah, equally as important, but for me, with the, the unmanageability portion, I probably should have picked a passage on that because that's really what we deal with in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's like the way it was explained to me is our powerlessness is just a fact of life. You know, there's not anything that we can do to to control it or gain power over it except surrender to this process. And the way that we're what we're really doing with steps two through eleven is getting a new manager. Yeah. deal with the management of life and, and by way of getting this new manager the byproduct is sobriety we get injected with this new power and the power one of the byproducts is we stay sober you know but what we're really dealing with is the, the management portion of this is that i am unmanageable and it's not just directly correlated to my drinking it's just how i live it's drunk or yeah. sober i am unmanageable mm -hmm. and that's the the second delusion that got smashed for me when uh 
And, and that's what I didn't get smashed for those seven previous years. Because I still believe that I could wrest satisfaction and happiness out of the world if I only managed well. But the thing is, is I didn't think I was managing. I thought I was surrendering. And that's the biggest baffling feature of it is that I thought like, well, no, I'm going to meetings. Like I'm, I'm raising my hand and sharing my problems. I'm, I'm going out for hookah afterward. You know, I'm doing sober softball. Right. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm an intergroup representative. I'm a grapevine representative. I'm a GSR. I go to conventions. I'm surrendered, you know, but uh, I, I didn't know that I wasn't. You know, I, I was still just desperately trying to cling on to some semblance of life that I could wrestle to the ground and, and say uncle and make my own. And that would be, you know, and that would lead to me being sober. I feel like um, that's why those scales are so yeah. precarious to me th- between those two archetypes, because it's like that person you're talking about has an opportunity for somebody to approach them and be like, hey, so here's this thing called depth and weight. Here's this mm-hmm. this life-saving message. And then this other person who's like so far further down the you know physical debilitating kind of scale may be beyond that place. I don't know. And they're just, or they're just in a place where they're so, you know, jittery and befogged, like the book talks about where they just can't hear what you're saying. Um, So I was, and this other person maybe is not hearing it is all, uh, you know, I'm like, so I feel like it's more tragic almost, you know? Well, ex- exactly that, John, because I was, as you were talking, Roland, I was thinking, because your experience and my experience are so aligned with mm-hmm. being in Alcoholics Anonymous as kind of a f- only really touching one part of the triangle, right? Mm-hmm. The fellowship. And, um, you know, um, I mean, you guys, so much amazing. I knew this was going to be a, a fucking fire episode, but you guys, <laughs> so much amazing stuff. But like, um, it's, you know, you sat in Alcoholics Anonymous. I sat in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not like there weren't people thumping the book right, right in front yeah, of me exactly. at meetings. It's not like there weren't recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous talking the way that we now talk in meetings. Yeah. I couldn't hear it. In fact, I would go, I had a friend of mine, a good close friend of mine who I actually was a roommate of mine who was a recovered <laughs> member of Alcoholics Anonymous and he would talk about the book and Alcoholics I would hear him give leads and I would be like, are we doing, like, are we doing the same thing? <laughs> <laughs> Because I could, and I felt like, I felt like, am I, am I stupid? Am I, am I, why can't he he would pick out passages of the book like you just did and read it. And it was like the words, it was like, they didn't, I don't know. It was like, they weren't English. It Mm -hmm. didn't make sense. It's like, um, is, is that what, is that in the 12 and 12 or? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I carried both. I didn't know. Um, (laughs) And so. I mean, I never read either one, but you know what I mean? I carried them around like I was supposed to. And I thought I was just like through osmosis going to get them. And I did all the right things. I went to the meetings. I showed up on time. I was there fucking seven days a week. I dragged my little children with me and I was a good, I dated in the rooms. I did all, you know, like, um, and, uh, and what you, everything you guys have said, what it's made me think of is there's a line in the book that I love is that every imaginable, we have tried every imaginable remedy. Mm-hmm. And that's the first 100 talking about how they tried before alcoholics. Of course they tried everything else. Well, 
I, you know, you guys were talking about young people and getting into the rooms too early or, or at the right time or whatever. And my thing is, is like, um, you can't, I don't think that Alcoholics Anonymous works until you've tried every imaginable remedy and you're only limited by your imagination. Yeah. So if your imagination is weak and it's not, and it's like the best <laughs> you can come up with is like, is like, um, well, I tried quitting and now I'm going to do AA and that's all you can think of. Then you just do the steps and it fucking works, right? Yeah. Steps work. I mean, like exactly what you said, Roland, like whatever, like there's a, a bunch of different ways to do it. I'm not judging anyone for like doing it a certain way. There's, I believe that it works the best if you do it the way that the first 100 did it, but yeah. I'm not denying other people's experience that they took six months or a year or whatever. Right, I mean, we just right. talked to somebody who took two years and she's a sober yeah. member of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and has an excellent program. And where this comes to is, uh, is, is down to percentages. And I don't want to get right. down this rabbit hole right, of like, right, Oh, right. the first, you know, in 1950, you know, they had a 75 or 55 or whatever yeah, percent yeah. success rate. And today we have maybe at best an 8% success rate, maybe 20 if you're whatever, I guess they, I didn't realize that they use chip sales as a determination of, where we're at or whatever. And I know it's like people, the chances of people staying after five years. And I know all that stuff. Like I don't study it. It's that's why I don't want to speak on it specifically. But what you're saying is true. It's like, yes, yeah, somebody can, I ha, I know people in the fellowship who have sponsors who tell them you will not sponsor until you have 30 months. This is some number they've pulled out of there. <laughs> yeah, it's arbitrary. Like 30 months. And on the set, the next day they go and spawn. I know two people who are currently sober and have, surpassed the 30 month mark and now apparently they're allowed to sponsor people they say so <laughs> the question is is like that's two of how many other people were offered the exact same solution that yeah. never got the opportunity to make it to 30 months because exactly what you were talking about something happens to me at three to six months and there's this thing that um i'm like i have a hard time remembering all like always what it, my early sobriety looked like but lately i've been remembering that there was this moment in time i was 100 days sober uh, I was in a treatment center and God presented an opportunity, I think, to where I could have either gone one way or the other. It was like I could either follow this one path where I was kind of forced into um, helping other people. You know, it's forced into this altruistic thing of helping people who are newer than me. Or I could be like, screw this. I'm going to, because at that point I was starting to take and like do things my own way. I was starting to manage. Mm -hmm. And God kind of like smacked me which I would have never seen it at that point that it was God, you know, God kind of smacked me and like gave me this opportunity. And I took the, I took the opportunity to help other people. And from that moment on is where the obsession was lifted. And I fucking rocketed into the fourth dimension of Fuck existence. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm, I was, as you were talking, I was like thinking about these people who maybe get into these opportunities or these situations where they're being told, do a step a month, do a step a year, whatever it is. And they don't stay sober. Is God presenting them with opportunities to hear things in meetings and they just can't hear it to yeah. people coming to them and being like, Hey man, like I'm doing it this other way or seeing friends doing it this other way. And, and maybe they're, they're taking it or they're not taking it, you know? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, I have to take the action, right? Yeah. We can talk all about this or that or the other thing, but like how, how many sponsees do you know that you present them with the thing and they just don't fucking do it? Right. 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 So the, I feel like what it really boils down to is like of those people who are coming to AA and have some degree of willingness, right? Not, we're not, we're not talking about the people who don't want to stop drinking. Right. So the people who actually come to AA show up and have some desire to stop drinking and some willingness to do something 
something. They don't know what to do. They're just here and they're like, I'm going to, I need to change my life. Of those people, how many of those people are being approached the way that Bill and Bob approached Bill Dotson? Right. Saying, here's who we are. Here's how we drank. We were where you are at. And there's a solution and it involves immediate action on your part. Right. Who, how many of them are hearing that? And, and so in the guise of love and tolerance, a certain part of our fellowship would like to say, that's none of my business and that's his journey. And he'll just, he'll eventually hear what he needs to hear. And for me, love and tolerance is I'm going to make sure he hears what they would have said in that same instance, because that worked. You know, and yeah. that's what AA is. And I'm not going to be like, hey, new guy who's willing. Um, dude, you got to get a gym membership. You have to get a gym membership <laughs> first off. And, you know, you know what? Sorry. Hang on. Back up. First, go vegan. Okay. Go <laughs> vegan. <laughs> Yeah, because there's scientific it's, journals it's, out there that uh, tell us that uh, sobriety is equally correlated to our uh, diet. So alkaline Damn. diet, okay? <laughs> well, I'm pre- I don't know if I've, you guys are misreading it, but the line in the book says we straighten out physically and then mentally, and then the spiritual will follow. That, right? Exactly, that's right. So, yeah, so the as soon first as you can bench right. two fifty, then you'll be fine. Look, your mother and I have talked about it. We know you don't want to do it, but we really feel it's for the best. Uh, uh, I understand, Dad. It's okay. Uh, I'll go to rehab. Kyle was given six months to do a fucking inventory. Check out that girl, man. She's out. A distraction after distraction after distraction. Kept putting it off. Would he ever get it done? This summer, John Franklin is Shelley Long, playing Eddie Murphy in a film by John Franklin. Dude, check out her tits. This summer, everything you thought you knew about recovery things are getting a little crazy around here. is going to fly right out the window. Our yoga instructor totally reminds me of my ex-girlfriend. Too many cooks in the kitchen. I guess I'm going to stay for another three months. Sometimes. Who wants to go to the gym? Cook up a whole bunch of trouble. I work out every day, dude. I work out every fuck. John Franklin is John Franklin in a John Franklin film. Step to work. Don't do that fucking shit. That dude's nice. It's my parents' dime, and I'm really not doing shit. Coming this summer. Page 152. Uh, We know our friend is like a boy whistling in the dark to keep up his spirits. He fools himself. Inwardly, he would give anything to take half a dozen drinks and get away with them. He will presently try the old game again, for he isn't happy about his sobriety. He cannot picture life without alcohol. Someday, he will be unable to imagine life either with alcohol or without it. Then he will know loneliness such as few do. He will be at the jumping off place. He will wish for the end. Um, I think that... So Vision for You, that chapter, is so 
it's it like makes my skin tingle. It's so fucking dope. Um, and it and it's so bipolar because like it starts with the most soul crushing vision of desolation of this like horrible desperate feeling that nothing will ever be good enough to fix my problem and even even the 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 paragraph right before that is that line unhappy drinkers who read this will understand like people who read that and don't relate with it it's kind of just like it's like the people we were just talking about okay cool well you you might have you might have shown up too soon. I, I I don't know, man. It's so it's so brilliant that over and over again when they do these these like baroque, spooky, scary paragraphs like that, where it's like this powerful, um, almost like haunting language that really gets down to your soul if you relate with it. That at no point does it talk about DUIs and fucking car wrecks and you know divorce and all this shit it goes into what you started you know when when you were talking about your reading it goes into that stuff and that stuff only it talks about and this is kind of to me this is at the core of the unmanageability thing and it's a great companion piece to that page 44 the qualifiers because if i haven't experienced this at all this stuff i'm not going to sit down and look at page 44 with you i don't i don't care about that I, I, I don't care to really look and see if I if I have this problem that you're trying to qualify me for. I certainly wouldn't think that you would have the honesty to answer those questions to to find out if you're the dude who needs to do the rest of this work. And this this uh, I don't even want to say feeling this state of existence where I am continually humoring myself that it's going to be okay because I'm going to figure it out is the essence of the second part of step two unmanageability. It's got nothing to do with the drama caused by my drinking. It's got nothing to do with how much I drank, how long I drank for, uh, and how many people I fucked over and all that shit. What it has to do with is that like, I am this character at a certain point when I try to stop, I get to a place where the only thing I know is my own ability to cope with my shit. And so that's my God in that situation. Cause that's the only thing that I, th that I think will work. And that somehow if I exert myself just enough, I can figure it out. I'm going to whistle in the dark and tell people I'm doing all right, because I've got something on the back burner. Something's working. Something's going to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And even when well-meaning people reach out to me to help, even if I'm in the rooms and somebody with a solution, like Fred was talking about, is talking to me. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's great, man. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I just got to, you know, I got to fucking, I just need this promotion at work and I got to figure out, you know. And there's always another horizon that I need to get to. And it's right. always something external. Mm -hmm. There's always some plan I have that's going to get me to a place where I'm not a scared little kid whistling in the dark. Mm. And until I hit that place, that rock bottom, it doesn't really matter what other kind of rock bottom I hit, you know, because I'm never going to see what we're talking about in steps one and three. I'm never going to see like, oh yeah, uh, I am running my life into the ground. 
you know, because I do go to these step one meetings and I hear all this shit about, yeah, you know, I always knew I was powerless, but I couldn't accept that I was unmanageable. Mm. And like, aside from the right. grammar and syntax, um, <laughs> the uh, what, what sincerely drives me nuts about that is like, I, I, I sit here and I hear people talk about unmanageability in eloquent terms, in succinct, factual terms, like all kinds of different ways. And they're right there. Like, like you guys are saying, they're right there next to you in a meeting and they're saying it, I'm hearing it and they're firing on all cylinders and they're talking about what the book's talking about. And then it comes to you and you just repeat what your buddy in the meeting said. And you're just like, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I could always tell, I always knew I was powerless, but I just, I couldn't see that I was unmanageable. And then, and then if you, and then the flip side is that of that is the guy who's like, yeah, I mean, unmanageability, I could see that, you know, uh, and then he just lists how many times he got arrested. And it's just like, <laughs> dude, it's like yeah. Roland said, let's, let's talk about keeping it simple, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Do these two things apply to you? Right. And that's really all I need to look at in step one, these page 44 qualifiers. Cause in step three, I'm going to look way more at this kind of stuff, but right. Make no mistake, I need to drive home to these people that, like, your your drama is not uh, the unmanageability that the book is talking. It might be what they're talking about in meetings being unmanageability, but this thing that Roland was just going about is, is this is what my unmanageability is. The fact that I'm going to continue to drive my life into the ground trying to do my best. Yeah. And I, I think that was a fantastic choice. You obviously Googled it and found somebody smarter than you to... <laughs> pull out 152. <laughs> um, so, you know, what I, what I, we heard a speaker earlier this week and, and a lot of the talk was around, you know, the problem is, is not my drinking. The problem is me living. And he used the words undrunk. I've always said like my, the problem is living sober. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're joking yeah, about exactly. the book, but the problem is that was a great that lead, I can't, by the way. yeah, he, uh, he's, that was yeah, great. he's somebody I really enjoy, but, um, yeah, he, you know, the whole idea of, of, and it says it right here. And I, I, I like this line a lot. He says, um, you know, for he isn't happy about his sobriety. Yeah. Right. So it's like, this isn't about, um, you know, uh, how the problems are, he's not, he's unhappy because he's sober in life and, and exactly what you were just saying. Um, you know, he can't imagine uh, life with or without alcohol. I mean, the imagining life with or without alcohol is what always keeps in for me because it's like that's that's the most depressing place that you can be. It's like being between a rock and a hard place where it's like there, there's there's nothing. It's just like when you get to that place, it's like there's only one solution that I could see, and that was like I need to check out life. You know, I need to, yeah. to, you know, make the ultimate sacrifice here and, and just, just end it because what's the point, you know, I was, at, I was that, and that's the jumping off places it talks about is that's where I got, when I got to my final treatment center was like, I have tried absolutely everything imaginable to get sober and I have fucking failed. And, and the worst part about it is I thought I tried AA too. Yeah. Right. And it didn't, and right. it didn't work. So what, yep. you know, I must be somebody that is like not susceptible to these steps because I've done them and they don't work and, you know, right. medications and all the other shit doesn't work. I'm just going to fucking end it. And my, the sponsor, when he approached me was said, you know, shared his experience of getting to the same place and say, you know, and I wanted to kill myself, and I just like for whatever reason did not have the ability to. 
And uh, that's really what made me go, maybe this dude knows what he's talking about a little bit, and I'll just do what he said. So the idea that, that, you know, sobriety is my problem. And I feel like this is what is the, the main kind of splinter between the kind of the two schools. If there's two, let's say, I mean, there's a lot of different people in Alcoholics Anonymous, but let's say there's two major groups in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? You know, there's, there's one that's like this idea that like, we can't say anything that could potentially offend them or like scare them away because we got to bring them in and hug them. And, Mm -hmm. and, that group, I think, doesn't believe that God is the one keeping is me yeah. sober. Because if it's the difference between if God is keeping me sober, then it's not of me to decide whether or not this other person is going to get sober. Yeah. Right. But if I'm somehow responsible for keeping them sober, then of course the responsibility is on me to bring them in and hug them and love them and make sure that they're getting what they need and mm-hmm. take them to meetings and buy them coffee and do all these things that we hear about in meetings. Right. And I'm not saying that these things are inherently bad. I'm saying it's not Alcoholics Anonymous because it says right here, it says right here that. If he is tired of life sober, he will drink and then he will find the place, right? And so it is my job as a sober, recovered member of Alcoholics Anonymous mm-hmm. to do one of two things. I'm either there to qualify them and 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 they've decided, yes, they're alcoholic. And now we're going to immediately, as Roland already said, we're going to immediately jump into the work so we don't find them six months down the road in that place of not having a spiritual experience and not having alcohol, yeah. right? Or my job is to arm them with the facts about themselves Mm -hmm. so that the next time they drink and they're sitting on the bar stool and they're banging on the bar, asking themselves how they got there again, they might recall the things we talked about, how, hey, man, remember when you said you were going to make that solemn oath to your wife that you weren't going to drink for 90 days no matter what, Mm -hmm. and then 45 days later, you're drunk? This is good information about a first step. Right. Because there's no need for me to go down the third step rabbit hole with somebody. Um, You know, as John was talking about, there's no need for me to talk about that. If you don't believe you have a problem with alcohol, you have to discover that for yourself. And sometimes the most kind, loving thing we can do is give somebody information and send them back out into the world. And I think what's happened today, you know, controversially is that we've exchanged alcohol with fentanyl and when you send somebody back out into the world there's a really good chance that they're gonna fucking die you know and that sucks like i'm not that is awful i fucking hate that that's the reality of the situation but i i can't force somebody to be at this place i can't force somebody to believe that sobriety is their problem they have to know it and when you know it as roland said when you know it there's nothing else to do but to do the steps yeah yeah, that's the, it reminds me of having like, I've only had this conversation with a couple of sponsees, but people that just aren't doing the work. So you arm them with the facts about themselves. So you mm-hmm. just have to say, and this is the nicest, kindest thing that I can think to do to somebody is just tell them, hey, you're not doing AA. Yeah. You are not doing the steps. You are not doing it as we've outlined. You are not taking direction. You you don't appear to be willing. And that's a harsh conversation to have with somebody. I've only had it a couple of times because most guys just disappear. Yeah, but I, yeah. I have to, to say, I don't want you to come back to AA like I did and go, AA doesn't work. I did that and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So as a sponsor, I think it's a duty to say, listen, you're not doing this thing and you're going to drink again. And when you do, I want you to get back here and I want you to know that it wasn't done properly the first time. So there's an opportunity for you to come back and go, oh yeah, my sponsor said I wasn't doing it. I guess I will do it the way that you know is outlined. 
Whatever. The problem is, is he he's sitting uh, every week. He's hearing from fifty other people that <laughs> yeah, the actual solution exactly is right. to just not drink uh, and yeah. just go to meetings and keep coming back. And the the thing that always drives me crazy is I I'm I understand what's behind those sayings. And it, and the thing is, is when you when you say those sayings. Um, with like a full with the whole thing like if you were to just say hey man keep coming back yeah of course we want you to come back but we're also going to tell you all this other shit too like it's yeah we've just shortened it to this point of like uh we're just going to take out all the meat and just hand you the bone and then be like <laughs> now survive on this yeah good luck exactly. right yeah hashtag the, odat the thing of <laughs> <laughs> the thing of like being in a meeting that's called aa right Mm-hmm. And talking about my personal life experience with then he will know loneliness such as few do, where I like just I pick my wife up from work. I've got like 10 or 12 days. I'm trying to find a sponsor. I'm like doing the step work out of the book. I'm writing my own four step because I can't find a sponsor. And I'm just like, I'm just I'm doing what the book says. And I find myself telling her just like, I don't know what to do. Mm. I, I remember saying to her, like, I do not have a solution in my life right now. And I understand people who I've known in my life who have befuddled me better than I ever had ever before that point, because I am at the jumping off place. I do not have the thing that was working for me that even though it was killing me was still better than what I feel right now. And I'm, and I've, I'm so I'm to the point where I'm far enough away from it to where I can feel that shit coming back in. And I know I'm going to pick up again mm-hmm. and something has to happen because I am sitting here telling you, honestly, I do not want to pick up. I mm-hmm. do not want to. And I know I'm going to Yeah, and having that clarity and relaying that in a meeting called AA and having people look at me like I'm fucking dumb or crazy (laughs) is so, so sad because a lot of people don't ever experience that. And therefore being a member of the no matter what club is sufficient. And that's totally groovy, dude. And that's cool. But again, back to the what is my purpose? You know, yeah, why exactly. am I at the meeting? I'm there to talk about that experience because only a real alcoholic will relate with that experience. Exactly. And that's why I go is I go to talk to the one guy, you know, I, I go to yeah. connect with that one dude that will be in that meeting that is like in that same place. Like, I right. don't know what to do. I'm, I'm lost and I, I'm afraid, you know, I'm terrified. I'm going to go out and drink again. Not the 75 other people that are rolling their eyes at everything you say, you know, right. yeah. I had to do more inventory on the, the 75 <laughs> than, than I fucking care to admit, you know, but. So, um, I'm glad that you guys like really went like fucking rift on this and went other place. I went so obvious. <laughs> that was my fear of doing it. page 30. <laughs> okay. Have you guys ever heard of it? So I'm going to go to uh, the idea. The idea that somehow he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. That's it. So I'm just reading one sentence. And I think similarly uh, to Roland, this is one of those points in the book that I bring sponsees to, and I use it as a great, you know, 
they use the word pr- in your reading on page 44 they still use the word probably right like hey if mm-hmm. these are your things you are probably an alcoholic uh and if you are then only a spiritual experience going to help you um and here they're saying uh the idea that somehow someday he will control and enjoy his drinking so i like to use this as an example so the example i like to use is um when you control your drinking, do you enjoy it? <laughs> and when you're enjoying it, is there any sense of control? Yeah. And to me, this was a really eye-opening experience because it really shed light on some things that I, I maybe had wouldn't ever say it that way. I would have never put it into that context. But once I frame my life this way, and once I start looking back on my personal experience, um, I was like, oh, yeah. Because when I, if you allow me to enjoy alcohol the way i want to enjoy alcohol it is not socially acceptable (laughs) it is not the way that normal people do things right it starts off there's a line you know in in uh in bill's story he says a drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life i've experienced that i've experienced Mm -hmm. drink being important and exhilarating and i don't think that people who have that experience are alcoholics you know i think that's just normal like hey we're gonna go out and it would be fun if we had a few drinks right that's and it's important to them and it's and it adds to their Thing. And I've experienced that, but I've also experienced enjoyment looking like what it looks like to me today, which is um, by myself, completely <laughs> alone, drinking and and uh, till there's nothing left, and then whatever happens after that, right? Yeah. Um, and then I've experienced what it looks like in those times where I'm trying to control it, like when you know somebody in my life has said, "Hey, listen, if you don't." stop, I'm going to leave. And for a period of time, I can attempt to moderate or control my drinking. But as I'm doing it, if I look back with an honest reflection on that experience, I was so tortured inside the entire time it was happening. I was tortured and every little thing set me off. And I was, um, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever had the experience of like sitting in your car sober sitting in your car outside of your own home where your loved ones are your loved one your significant other is and you're having to psych yourself up (laughs) just to walk through the fucking door yeah (laughs) yeah no yeah and a drink and you go (sighs) okay now i can fucking think even just even just driving to the liquor store right or it's like it's over. Yeah, that's gonna, the relief. I'm gonna that's find. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Pulling into the drug dealer's house. Yeah, knowing that he texted you back that he actually has the thing. My, that he said. my yeah, thing was exactly. always like being at work and I get the notification that a package arrived at my house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, all right, yeah. FedEx guy doesn't know he's my drug dealer, but you you're know, one so, of those yeah. Silk Road motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would just Dude, be like, uh, I would have that experience. I would be like. Uh, hey boss, I'm gonna take a long lunch, okay? Long early lunch. It's like 10:30 yeah. in the morning. <laughs> She's like, okay, yeah, that's cool. And then I, I'm just like, on the drive there, I'm just like, dude, oh, it's gonna be so not in the world, singing along. Right? The sun has never shone so bright. The mu- 15 every, minutes every earlier, song if you had walked into my office, I would have told you to fuck off for yeah. life. Yeah. <laughs> fuck away from me. Not a like care in the world, though. The way I, just, I always explain this portion is like I, I would have the the screaming would be so loud in my head, yeah. and I don't know why. It was just I, I could not silence the anxiety and the terror and the fear and the just the the blood. I couldn't. And, and the only thing that would break me out of that would be the thought of <sighs> I just had a drink here. 
mm-hmm. if I could just get a drink in me, then it's good. And then just the thought would give me a relief, you know, yeah. and then I'd be off and, and go do it. Yeah. So this is what brings us to the first delusion. You know, the delusion that we're like other people are presently maybe has to be smashed. And I think that's what gets most people in the door of AA is they, they, they touch this for the first time. Yeah. They touch the, 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 they realize that there's a problem, you know, and that we had already talked about the other delusion of being able to rest satisfaction and happiness out of this world that we only manage well. Well, this is the delusion that got smashed for me at 25 when I realized that I am, I'm screwed, you know, I am mm-hmm. fucked and I, and I need help. And it's only through both of those delusions being smashed that gives us the step one experience of going, okay, so what is the solution going to be? And, and it really doesn't matter what the solution is because I just need out of this. Yeah, And that's the, the, the thing that always connects with me with this passage, the idea that somehow someday he will control and enjoy his drinking is the, um, that's sort of the entry into AA, you know? Okay. 12 questions with our guest, Roland. Question one, how long did it take you to do the steps? Two weeks. Nice. That includes uh, amends. All, Look at the big dick on Rollins. <laughs> got all your living amends done in two weeks. <laughs> all of the living—I mean, everything wasn't a living amends, so I didn't. Just, you know, I didn't actually. Just have as to a sidebar, <laughs> as a sidebar, go ahead and um, tell us how you made amends to yourself. Yeah. Oh, that was the that one took the longest. Was I the wrote a piece of, of two weeks. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I wrote it on a piece of paper. I sh- I shared it at the river. I set it on fire, <laughs> and I let the ashes wash away in the in the river beautiful okay um when was the last time you heard someone's fifth step god it would have been pre-covid so um it's been a couple months actually that's been four months maybe i was working with someone right during covid and sputtered out after uh, i heard his fifth step when did you feel the nearness of your creator i remember this specific moment and that was i had worked the 12 steps so i would have been i don't know 30 to 60 days sober. I can't remember what it was, but I, uh, I had gotten out of this treatment center. I was living with my grand sponsor. Uh, I was heavily involved in 12 step work. I was bringing meetings into treatment centers. I was doing all of this stuff that was like completely foreign to me. And I remember driving to a treatment center. Um, I had, I'd felt this inspiration to go, you know, I was looking for sponsees to work with because that was what they directed me to do. And so I was looking for this sponsee to work with and something came into my mind, which was like, try Talbot house, which was this halfway house in, in the city I got sober in. And uh, I was on my way there and, and I remember driving and I remember this absolute peace. This just this peace that had washed over me, this contentment, this internal feeling of like, I was, I was present in my life. I felt completely at ease with it. I, and it, it took until that moment. And this was three weeks after I had completed the steps that I was like, I knew that I was on a new footing. And I knew that I had this foundation underneath me. And I absolutely, with a knowing inside of me, knew that I was in a different position in my life. Nice. And it was awe-inspiring. I mean, I was driving, and I knew that this was a spiritual experience. Because I had lived the previous, you know, 15 years just constantly racked with anxiety and fear and resentment and anger and frustration and sadness and depression and all of the shit, and it was gone. Did you cry? And I knew... No, I did not cry, but I just... I would have cried. just sort of... I was just in a moment, you know, it was just a moment where I just absolutely knew that this was a God working in my life. It's awesome. You know, and, and to accept it, which was 
immediately frustrating to me because my belief on step two and what God meant and how it needed to be viewed and the perception of God was completely smashed in that moment because what I was feeling was nowhere near what I had thought people mm. said when they said God in meetings. So it was just like, this is this is not, you know, there, there isn't any hurdle to be done with step two. Just do the steps. That's all I did is I yeah. did the steps and then I got this experience and it was nothing like I had perceived. You know, there was nothing religious about it. You know, it was just absolute knowing that there was this power working in my life now. And it was, uh, I mean, it was truly beautiful. Uh, That's awesome. awesome. It's fucking awesome. All right, your turn. No, I just, I prompted that incredible response. Well, yeah, no, but then I asked him if he cried. Oh, that was that was one of your questions. <laughs> I ruined the awesome response by by making a joke. So now, I was hoping he was curious because, like, I I I had I had an experience like that very recently and uh, just cried. I was like, yeah, I'm just gonna have a nice cry right now and enjoy. I cry all the cry. time. Okay. I I God and I we cry together all the time. When I when I when I pop into the Zoom early for these interviews. Fred's just weeping in the corner of the room. <laughs> it's the only thing keeping me together. Okay. Uh, bubble bath and a good cry. Um, <laughs> what is your least favorite AA slogan and why? Oh, my God. Uh, I have no idea. I think they're all equally misinterpreted. So you can pick one for me and I can tell you exactly why I hate it. Okay. Easy does it. Uh, there's just no basis in, for that in the literature. <laughs> progress, not perfection. Uh, it means spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection, yet it's been bastardized down into don't fucking try. Uh, Kick your dog, beat your wife, you know, it should do say, whatever you want. Easy does it, don't fucking try, and hashtag ODAT. On, in every meeting on the wall, that's what it should say. I will not drink well, with you today. <laughs> <laughs> it just... That one, I, I, that is my least favorite. I will say that. That is my least favorite. Because what I think that everyone means is like, I had the worst day ever. You know, mm-hmm. I spit in my boss's face. But you know what? Spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. We're not seeking perfection here. Yeah. But they don't say spiritual. All they say is progress. Progress, yeah. yeah you exactly. know, hey, General listen, I progress. cut somebody off and uh, a family of six careened off into a ravine and died in a fiery death. <laughs> But I called the police to let them know it happened because it's progress, not perfection. No, where I see the most egregious misusage of that, to, to me at least, is on Reddit, where somebody is like, post, they post like, um, I, try, I tried everything I could do to stay sober. I made it four days. And uh, I just, I, I didn't, I didn't even want to drink. The desire was gone. It was great. Uh, I went out to dinner with a friend and the waiter asked me if I wanted a drink and I ordered a whiskey and I, I was, I was drunk before I even realized it. And I, and I'm crushed. I'm demoralized. I'm humiliated and embarrassed. I'm going to lose my job. My wife's leaving me. My children look at me with dismay and tears in their eyes and say, why daddy, why'd you do it again? Why did you do it? And then the first comment is progress, not perfection. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's like the frothy emotional appeal people will throw it. That throw at people coming back from a relapse. You know what I mean? They go, yeah. "Well, you know, you made it six months this time. Last time you made it three. You know, that's progress." Yeah, like it's fucking Frogger progress. or something. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, 
Exactly. You got to level eight. You know, just yeah. like that. What the fuck? Next time you're going to make it a year. You're going to get drunk again for sure, but you'll make it to a year next time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, have you heard of Fitstep that did not include weird sex stuff? Uh, so I always throw a disclaimer out there, I, and I that that I'm not here to listen to your uh, your specific sexual history. What we're inventorying are harms. Mm-hmm. You know? We're not inventorying your sex life. We're inventorying harms. So I make sure to make that. So it's like I'll even say I don't need to hear that you did you know whatever to so and so. If unless that's something that you feel like you have to share in order to get sober, I'm not gonna obviously bullguard anybody needing to get something off of their chest. Right. But, um, but I make sure to throw that disclaimer out there is that we're actually going to look at the harms you did and, you know, regard to sex. So yeah. that clears a lot of it away. Cause, I, but I have heard like innumerable steps that, you know, people just like jump into every, uh, you know, sexual act that they've ever done <laughs> for me to like morally justify all that shit. And you're just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just like laugh openly at him. <laughs> uh, okay, let's see. How many people have you sponsored? I have no idea. So when I first got sober, you know, I was directed to sponsor and sponsor a lot. I only worked like 30 hours a week. I only attended AA meetings. And I sponsored a ton of fucking people. I had a revolving door of about 12 people. So I sponsored directly out of treatment centers. A lot of them just had no interest in sobriety, but I would just keep people coming. So I had this revolving door of like 12 people. And a lot of people got sober, but, you know, I didn't keep track. So I would say 50 to 100. I have, I have no idea how to base that. It slowed down since like having a kid and, uh, some other things, but you know, I probably try and keep about five guys because if I have five, at least one of them is working with me. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Outside of uh, working with a sponsee or preparing to work with a sponsee, how much time have you spent studying the book? Um, I wish I was in a big book study meeting every week, but I'm not. I seriously, dude. What? We fucking have one. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So I'm in a big book study every week. Every week I'm in a big book study. So no, but there was like a two year period where I would just we didn't have an organized group of solution based people in the city working uh, big book stuff. So we focused our attentions on not meeting creation, but just getting sponsees. So in that time, I wasn't in a big book study Um, in the early first two years I was in two big books study meetings a week and I could I could quote any passage I've noticed that I my, my recall for page references and information out of the book has like diminished a little bit and I hate that one inspiration I got recently was just to read some read the big book at night you know that's mm. something that I can do you know it's kind of one of those lame things we hear in a meeting like well just read a page every night but there's value to that you know Absolutely. so and I, you're a I recovered try- person now it's not like <laughs> yeah yeah, exactly. It's not like you're Johnny so, uh, Crack Smoke right off the street. Read a page a night. You're good. No. What right. I noticed first was my sponsees actually had better recall for the big book than I did. And I was like, that can't be. I need to mm-hmm. do something about that. You know? 
But so, isn't it great when you have a sponsee pushing you to be better? Yeah, exactly. When you start noticing your sponsees living a healthier life than you, right. you know, it's like, oh, fuck. You know? <laughs> no, it's uh, motivation. Okay. Um, would you say you've lost more sponsees at steps four and five or at steps eight and nine? Damn, I don't know. Um, I don't lose a lot of sponsees at four and five. Um, and I think it's just the way that I go about doing it because I, I assist a lot in four and five. I'm not one to read the, the pages 63 to 75 and just go, okay, call me when you're done. You know, I, I really make sure, put an emphasis, you know, an emphasis on making sure that they understand and that, and I also don't do an entire life story. You know, that's something that I don't do either. So I think it's extremely overwhelming if somebody's going to try and write every resentment because then they get, inevitably they just start reaching for resentments. Yeah, 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 they yeah. start right, reaching right, right. for all of the shit that ever frustrated them in life. And it could be completely baseless. Like they hadn't thought about this person in three years, but you told them to think about it. So therefore it found its way on the resentment inventory. Um, so I make it as easy as possible. And the way that I work the steps currently is I'll break up each section. So I don't tell them to write the entire inventory you know, nice. fear, sex, and, and resentment, you know, harms to others, whatever, at, uh, at one go, I'll say, why don't you do an inventory with me right now when I get to the, 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 the resentment portion of it? So I will, um, so we'll write one and they can see what it looks like and feel like to write a singular inventory. And they go, oh, it happens a lot where somebody goes, oh, that's like not at all what I thought. For I sure. Do. And it makes it, I think, a little easier. But usually I lose guys uh, because the way I display the steps and, and the seriousness, I take steps one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. I usually get a lot of people to no longer call me um, after I uh, start displaying what it's going to look like to take the actions. <laughs> Speaking of the that kid you were just talking about. Yeah, there he is. It sounds like he's leaving a fucking circus marching to your house or something. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, no, I lose guys in steps one, two, and three because they can kind of, it, it weeds a lot of people out when I'm like, all right, here's what we're going to do. And this yeah, is what's yeah. the problem. You know, and, and they, they go, oh, wait, like, I'm not ready for like that. I just kind of want to hit some meetings. I don't want to do the steps. I just want to do the steps. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Um, how did your sponsor approach you? So I had shared in a meeting and uh, I think I just like vomited, you know, at this point I'd been in AA for seven years. So I thought I knew how AA worked. Yeah. So I knew that you're supposed to go into meetings and share your issues, share your problems, share your neuroses. And, and then people are going to give you feedback and tell you what you're doing wrong. And then you just like do what they say. And by way of doing that, you stay sober. So I think I did that in a meeting and I just vomited about like coming back in rooms and, you know, I just got to stick and stay, man. I just forgot to play my tape back. And, uh, you know, if only, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I think he just heard like dumbass, desperate newcomer. <laughs> and that was like music to his ears. So he came and talked nice. to me and, and kind of, he corrected me a little bit. He corrected me in my thinking and I, I liked his directness and I liked that he, he also, what he did was talk about his experience with it, you know, mm. and I connected to his experience and said, maybe I should ask this dude to be my sponsor. And I asked him and he said, yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. What's your idea of the perfect meeting? 
So I've gone back and forth to this uh, over the years. And I used to, when I had first gotten sober, thought the perfect meeting was a meeting where everybody had their big book in their lap. They were all sharing directly from the book. They all had direct experience with working the steps. And then I found that meeting and it was the lamest fucking meeting and most boring <laughs> meeting I've ever been to in my life. There wasn't like, it, it didn't make any sense for me to be there because my whole thing is trying to find newcomers to work with and to share this experience with. Yeah. Um, but so when I would speak, it was just like, I was speaking to people that already had this experience. Uh -huh. um, so, but on the other end of that, I can't just be in meetings full of like, you know, the dark tunnel meetings or, or the, yeah. the, the, just the solutionless, baseless, like crap meetings. I find myself in those more frequently, but to me, there isn't like a perfect meeting. It's like, I need to be fed on both ends. I need the yeah. meeting that is like, full of the solution-based people that have direct experience and then I need to be passing it along to the solutionless meeting that, you know, is full of newcomers trying to fuck each other, you know? Sure. Yeah. So I find that there isn't like the perfect meeting. It's just that I need to be able to have this message flow through me, through mm -hmm. more experienced people that have direct experience that I can latch onto and, and then also pass it along. So nice. John and I were just having that discussion because I think Zoom has kind of really illuminated exactly what you were just talking about, yeah. which is that um, I so miss being in a room of 60 people of the first step meeting where they're yeah. all bust in from a treat. I miss that. I miss yeah. the energy of that place. Yeah. And I miss pitching to those people and exactly. speaking to them after the meeting. But I would get stuck in that loop of going to that meeting, only going to that meeting yeah, three exactly. or four nights a week and not getting fed on the other side. I need to still hear recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous speaking about the work because I get so much out of them. Exactly. Just today, as we've been chatting totally. for the last couple hours, I have been fed by the things you guys have said. And it is, you know, it changes my perspective. And it always reminds me to just remain open-minded because you never know when you might hear something. He just completely takes a line out of the book. I mean, the thing John read, it just really jumped mm -hmm. out at me and, um, you know, all that stuff. So I agree. It's like there isn't that perfect meeting because I really do need both of those bookends yep. um, yeah. to get fed both ways. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I felt that for a long time. I had moved from the city. I got sober into a new city and I, uh, I, I struggled to find people that I really were, were attracted to, which were people that were in the book. And I, and I, for about a year, didn't find that. And I just mm -hmm. felt like I was like, I just wasn't being fed, you know? And I, and I started getting frustrated easily and depressed and, and I just needed that fellowship portion. I always downplay the importance of fellowship because it's right. like, um, just as an overcorrection to, for people that think fellowship is our solution. But, uh, I, I needed that, you know, I truly needed to be around other people that, that were also rooted in this stuff. And it wasn't until I met some of those people where I started to get that influx again of, of like, of what I need, you know, mm -hmm. which is other people's experience with this stuff too. I don't want to go down a whole nother rabbit hole. Right. Uh, just two second thing. The thing that you just said and the John and right after John's reading in a vision for you, it talks about how, um, you know, uh, this fellowship is going to grow up around you. And then the next line is all around you, alcoholics are dying, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Of this disease. The suggestion is the al the fellowship that you seek is not a bunch of people already recovered sitting around in a room, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. The fellowship that we all um, partake in grew out of 
one recovered member of Alcoholics Anonymous, finding a non-recovered member, and then bringing them into the fold. You think about the group that we have right now, mm -hmm. right? And how many of them weren't there when we started, when the group kind of started, and now they've joined and yes. have brought this other thing in, and they were dying alcoholic deaths, and now they're in our fellowship, and that's how the fellowship grew. It's not this idea of like just the same people sitting in a room for 20 years, right? And not adding anyone new, right? And like yeah. somehow yeah. that's the fellowship, you know? But I agree, the overcorrection line, 100%. It's like, yeah. I do the same thing. I still need it. I still need this. I still need to be with people who are like me. Um, but I definitely go the other way a little bit just because I'm like, you know, so I play the sober softball card. Yeah, exactly. So anyways, um, okay. How many meetings do you attend weekly? And uh, you can give your answer in both uh, Zoom times and non-Zoom times. So it's changed. And this is work that I've done with my sponsor because I've, I've always attended a lot of meetings. I've never suffered in meeting attendance. You know, it's not our solution, but it's it's positive to, to be attending meetings, you know. But um, my life sort of took off at around three years sober. I had a child that was in a committed relationship with another person that likes to be with me, you know, and spend time with me in the evenings. And it just felt selfish for me to be attending as many meetings as I was when I had a family at home. So my meeting attendance dropped. But, you know, what that opened the door for was... Um, Something that happens over time with most alcoholics, which is that we have to practice these principles in our homes, occupations, and affairs. Yep. You know, so that's like uh, it's more important for me to be practicing these principles in my home life and, and at my workplace than in for an hour a day in a meeting. So what I end up spending my time doing in meetings, and I go about two a week, is looking for sponsees. You know, that's my whole goal is yeah. that I look for not necessarily sponsees, but anyone I can you know pass experience, strength, and help to. And anyone that, that is willing to, you know, work some steps. So uh, that's my my primary purpose, and I'm serious about following through with that. And uh, so I can do that two two nights a week, you know. And then I work with my sponsees outside of that. So I usually try to get to two. Sometimes it's not that many. You know, sometimes I just have a very full life, and it's and it's about working with the guys that I work with and, and being present in my my relationship. Dope. <clears throat> All right. Um, what's the longest you've seen someone push off completing a four step and still get through all 12 and recover? I've heard stories of people, but personally working with guys, I haven't seen it. You know, I, if somebody, from my personal experience, I haven't worked with somebody that has pushed off a four step for a considerable period of time. And then just like, oh, I'm over that. Hump. I'll jump into a men's, yeah. the hard, the yeah, harder right. portion and follow through with it. Yeah. You know, uh, I haven't seen it. You know, I've heard stories of the people in meetings that share that they, you know, put off their inventory for, you know, six months and finally did it and, you know, got this experience from it. But I, that's not something I've witnessed. So. Yeah. But, I, but, I, but this isn't fair because I typically work with chronic relapsing guys. You know, I work with the guys that are, are doomed and are fucked. And I just have like this sixth sense about finding those guys. Mm -hmm. So usually with those guys, they're not guys that can push off step work at all. Yeah. They need action. They need it immediately. And if they're pushing it off, I feel like at times it's because I've gotten to them too late. You know that they're they're already back in the cups of, of yeah. their management, and it's and it's almost impossible for uh, me to penetrate that. Okay, bonus right. question: How do you define thirteenth stepping? Um, is this a real question? Yeah, define it is uh, taking advantage of a newcomer. 
doesn't have to be sexually, but, uh, you know, taking advantage of uh, a newcomer in general. Perfect. Yeah. Bonus, bonus. Here, here, let me add to that. For, <laughs> let me add to the 13-step stuff. So uh, there do. used to be a guy that I that I had known in the program that I think he was in the wrong fellowship. He, he needed emotional support from his sponsees in order to propel him through life. So he would latch onto these guys, intentionally not work them through the steps so that he could keep them, basically. Uh. Know, and keep them under his and, and be fed from them and whatever that is he was seeking out of that that hurts his, his, his need to be needed by, by people so it was uh i was like that's that's like emotionally taking advantage of, of sick mm. people you know and he just kept a revolving door of, of, of new guys wow god that's fucked well on that uplifting note yeah, uh, fucking a way to end the podcast. <laughs> no, dude, that was that was fucking awesome. Great, you yeah. think? There was yeah, definitely a moment in there where I was like, "I'm about to interrupt these guys and be like, I love you guys." <laughs> I know. I know. And I was like, "I'm not gonna fucking do that right now." No, dude, that was really good. I look forward to it, man. Thanks for having me on. Hey, here. thanks for and hey, this, man. It was awesome. Yeah, I'll um, I'll text you the link. We got this Wednesday night book study. You can check it out. It's cool. Oh, for real? I've been needing yeah. to get back involved in a book study. It's been a while. Yeah, that's what I heard. So, <laughs> have a good weekend, man. All right, man. See you guys. All right, see, you, see ya. Thanks for listening.